This is God's word. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Thanks, Joe. So if you'd stay there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that's where we're going to be tonight, as was said. And we are going to be speaking out motivation for mission tonight. When he arrived off the coast of Mexico in 1519, the Cortes gave an order that must have seemed rather reckless and perhaps insane by the men he commanded. The very ships that had carried them safely across the Atlantic Ocean, the vessels that were the only connection that they had to the world that they knew, this tenuous lifeline of support in a dangerous world hostile to their very presence, was ordered to be scuttled, sunk, destroyed. And what was his reason for this act of naval demolition? It can all be summed up in one word. Motivation. As a result of uh, his orders, the men under Cortez, I think we would all agree, were definitely well motivated. There would be no thoughts of returning uh, to Europe when things became difficult in their mission of conquest. See, his bold move uh, pushed the motivation to a new level of intensity and urgency. They must succeed or they would perish. See, motivation is an essential part of life, isn't it? It's It's what gets us up in the morning It's what gets us through our days. Motivation speaks to what we value as important, what's worth pursuing, and why. Our motivation shapes everything we do and reveals much about why we are doing those particular things. Based on motivation, maybe we want to stay healthy and so we we get active and we get selective in our food choices. Or... Based on a motivation to enjoy life, others may choose an easier path with more attractive food options. 
motivation finds its ways into many aspects of our life. Work, romance, play, family, hobbies, and the goals we have around those things. But if we're followers of Jesus Christ, what about the motivation we should have for the mission of the gospel? As we started talking about tonight, motivation here matters as well. Because remember, motivation shapes what we do and why we do it and how we do it. So the passage we're looking at tonight in 2 Corinthians 5 is going to help us consider this issue. What should we learn regarding our own motivation through these words of the Apostle Paul. What is it that should motivate us in mission based upon his words? And in these, word, in these verses, Paul was actually very keen to make his motivation in mission clear for the Corinthians. His credentials and his credibility as an apostle of Jesus had been attacked by religious critics who had come to Corinth casting doubt on his integrity Casting doubt on the legitimacy of his message and the purity of his motivation. And so his words here are in some measure an attempt to deflect these attacks away. And in so doing he makes clear several things that characterizes his motivation in mission. Which are in turn instructive for us. And so we're going to unpack this passage a little bit. And before we do that, I'm just going to invite God's Spirit once again to help us understand these words he's inspired. So let's just pray. Father in heaven, we offer you this brief prayer. We pray that the same Spirit that inspired this word would open our eyes and prepare our hearts to receive what you have for us tonight through it. For we ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So what do we learn from this? How is this instructive to us? Well, the passage that Joe so uh, read well for us uh, shows us several things. And I just want to focus on two of them tonight. The first is that our motivation should and always should include a desire to have the approval of Jesus. In mission, our motivation should always include a desire to have the approval of Jesus. As we read these verses, it will become clear that his motivation, that is the Apostle Paul's motivation, was to be able to stand before Jesus and receive his approval in regards to the way he personally engaged with the mission of Jesus in the world. You can see it in verse 11 when he said, as it begins, knowing what it means to fear the Lord. What does that mean? you're going to go back just a a verse or two it points us the readers back to verses 9 and 10 where Paul was talking about making it his goal to please the Lord in light of the reality that everything he would do everything he had done everything that he would ever do on earth will one day be evaluated by Jesus when he stands before his judgment seat and so in all things Paul's motivation is to have Jesus approval And this was especially the case in terms of the gospel, in terms of the mission of his king in the world. Because remember, as Chris said it, this is God's mission, and we join him in it. This sense of accountability to Jesus fueled a sense of responsibility. He says, in light of this, we make it our aim to persuade others to the truth of the good news about Jesus. See, when it came to the mission and motivation, Paul had no competing agenda. 
or secondary scheme or side hustle when it came to this mission. In verse 11, it says, as you keep reading it, what we are is is plain to God, and I hope it is plain to your conscience. In light of this motivation to hear, well done, from the lips of Jesus, Paul wanted it to be clear that he operated with absolute integrity and with nothing to hide. This was plain to God, and he wanted it to be plain to others like the Corinthians. See, unlike his critics, he had no pride in status or reputation, but operated from a posture of selflessness and love in imitation of Jesus, the one he was attempting to please. See, these are the bearings of uh, the words we find in verses 14 and 15. If you're to look there, those beautiful words where it says, for Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. You see, in the very message of the gospel is the concept of substitution. That is, one died for all. That Jesus' death as our substitute was a selfless sacrificial act of love that brings life to those who are persuaded by it and respond in faith. And Paul speaks of this love. He looks upon this love of Jesus demonstrated at the cross and was compelled that his life should no longer be lived for himself, but for Christ who died and was raised for him. And so you see that motivation again that he said he wants Christ's approval when he sees him at the judgment seat. But we see it again from a slightly different perspective and at a greater depth. Because when we think of the mission, we have to remember that the mission itself is Jesus. The good news is Jesus. Speaking of him to others in such a way that is shaped by and reflects his love so that one day we can stand before him as his followers with a clear conscience and hear those words that will matter more than anything in that moment when we're standing before him. Well done. Now you may be thinking that this sounds an awful lot like works, (laughs) trying to please him. Like Jesus is my line manager and I want to get a good review when it comes to the end. And you may have a response that feels a bit of, I don't know, aversion or something to the motivation Paul has that he has to feel like he has to approve, have Jesus' approval. But there's some things worth saying here to help us see that this is a right, worthy, and healthy motivation for us to adopt as well as followers of Jesus. So first, an objection to this kind of motivation, seeking the approval of Jesus, can come from the fact when we talk about Christianity in relational terms, we'll speak about it uh, often as a personal relationship with with God, which is absolutely correct. We'll talk more about that in just a second. But it can also follow from questions that we could ask about being judged when the gospel is all about Judgment being averted by God's grace, and it's a gift that has nothing to do with works or performance. How do we, how do we pull all these pieces together? Because what we've been discussing tonight of having this desire to seek the Lord's approval could feel somewhat functional and performance-based. I mean, didn't Paul speak of Christ's love 
compelling him in his mission. So let's just give this some thought because he's not contradicting himself. Yes, Christianity is absolutely about having a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. There is no argument there. But we need to be sure that we are defining this relationship in a way that reflects reality. In Mark's gospel in our Sunday morning sermon series, we have, been, uh, we have seen how Jesus came as king. Announcing the arrival of his kingdom, of his rule. The good news is he announced that people could be a part of that kingdom. And that there is a very warm relational dynamic to it. Jesus, remember, refers to those who respond in faith in the gospel of Mark as in, ter- in family terms, as his brothers, as his sister, as his mother. It is very intimate. But even in light of all this, that is absolutely true. Jesus is still the king of a kingdom. And we enter into his kingdom to live under his rule. And we will give an account, not for salvation, but for reward. Salvation is free. Salvation is a gift. Salvation is something we receive by faith. But the life that we live for him very much is dependent upon what we do And those words that we will hear one day, Lord willing, if we desire to seek his approval in all things, but especially when it comes to his mission in the world, that people become followers of him, that we want that approval of hearing from him, that we've acted in a way that he says, well done. And even with this, there is far greater relational motivation in it than what you might conclude at first. Many of us in the room can likely think of an authority figure in our lives that we have looked up to, that we've admired, perhaps that we even loved. A parent, a teacher, a youth worker, a minister, hopefully. <laughs> and it would, mean the, it would mean the world to receive a word of commendation and approval from that person. Because it was the source of the approval that would make it so precious and so motivating. And Paul looked at the love of Christ demonstrated in his sacrificial death, sufficient for all, as so compelling that he wanted to live in mission for his King Jesus. That Jesus' approval meant so much to Paul simply because it would come from him. The one who had given himself for him. And notice it was Christ's love for the world that moved Paul to act in the same way. It wasn't just human affection, as powerful as that can be. Human affection is an inadequate motivation for our mission as we follow it in the world, for Christ's mission as we follow him in this world, unless it is being shaped by the love Jesus demonstrated. For the world at the cross. That selfless, sacrificial, self-giving love. Because our love, even for people close to us, even on our best days, can be fickle, can't it? It can be self-serving and self-approving and not dependable. Our love for people can lower the bar for others and tempt us to be self-congratulating. See, we all seek to please somebody and know their approval. 
And when it comes to the mission of the gospel in the world, our motivation must, it must include a desire to have the approval of the Lord Jesus. So that's, that's the first thing. That's the first thing we see in this passage. And the second is related to it. As we come to verses 16 to 21, the second half of this passage, if you will, we can see another reality, and that is we must have a deep and a proper appreciation for the cross. A deep and a proper appreciation for the cross. The cross is the central message of this mission, a message that holds the potential to fundamentally change a person's status before God. Now, Paul, we had just been talking about the sacrificial substitution of Jesus. And we're going to take that, the passage will take that theme further as it progresses. But it is the message of reconciliation, he calls it, which we'll speak of more shortly. But first, notice the impact that it makes as he comes to verses 16 and 17. He says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. In light of the reality of the cross, Paul's conviction was that people could no longer simply be considered through a, a grid of superficial criteria that is from a worldly point of view. What exactly is a worldly point of view that Paul is talking of here? I would suggest it's viewing people on the basis of things such as external appearances, Ethnicity, class, achievements, or, or lack thereof. Religiously speaking, people of the ancient world at the time of Paul's writing were primarily divided into two categories, Jew and Gentile, or non-Jewish. But in Paul's mind, the cross creates a new reality wherein two new categories take a higher priority than these. In Christ... Or not in Christ. He says, when a person is persuaded of the truth of the message about Jesus and is converted to him by faith, a whole new creation comes into existence. This person has a new identity in Christ. And with that new identity, a new destiny to be with God in eternity. We see this at the beginning of the chapter, in chapter 5, verse 1. If you want to just reference that there, I'm going to read it. It says... For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. And then in verse 5 it says, Now the one who has fashioned, for, uh, fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. This new identity leads to a new destiny of being with God throughout all eternity. And with that comes a new existence, not simply for eternity in the future, but for right now, a new made motivation for living as we just read about in verse 15. Do you remember those words? He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. What makes this possible, this new creation? How did this come about? Why is it so consequential that we need to properly appreciate its significance. Look at, verses eight, look at verse 18 again. 
says, all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God himself is the one who makes this new creation possible and he has done it through something called reconciliation. Reconciliation involves overcoming alienation, enmity, and estrangement to restore a relationship. That's what reconciliation means. And when we speak of reconciliation in this context, in the context of mission, it is a reference to the alienation, the enmity and estrangement between human beings and God. All of us, by virtue of our sin, have alienated ourselves from God. And this is not just some subjective sense of... um, emotional or relational distance but an objective reality our sin is an objective barrier to reconciliation that must be removed but by whom see because most religious effort in this world suggests and it's based on the misguided belief that we are capable of removing the barrier ourselves But that is only a fool's errand doomed to failure and frustration because this is a legal barrier, a judicial condition. If you were here a few weeks ago when we had a guest speaker, Yannick from Stockwell Baptist, he put it very well when he says, we all have a record, a conviction of guilt that must be removed in a way that satisfies divine justice. And if we fail to see that that's the reality that must be overcome, we will never appreciate what God has done for us in Jesus at the cross. Our sin created a condition of alienation. In our sin, we turned away from God, as it says in the the youth works that we hear so often here, shove off God. I'm in charge. No to your rule. We have turned away from him. But God, the offended party in his great mercy, has turned toward us at the cross of Christ. He turned toward the world in reconciliation. The world that had rejected him. God made a way for the barrier of sin to be removed. Not counting people's sins against them, but by putting their sins on Jesus and counting them against him. God made him who knew so, no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the great exchange that happened at the cross. That all our sin was placed upon him. All of God's righteous judgment that we rightly deserve. Jesus absorbed in himself when he died on the cross. Our record became his record so that his record could become ours could become the record of people we work with, live near, and share life with. They too, you too, can find forgiveness, new life, a new identity, and a new destiny, a new existence in Christ. And how can this happen through the cross? 
through the ministry and message of reconciliation. Listen to these words again. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. The message of of reconciliation has been entrusted to us. It happens through you and me. Paul likens it to being an ambassador. As his people, we represent the rule and reign of King Jesus in this world. And we know an ambassador's role is to faithfully represent, communicate, and pursue the interests of their homeland. Imagine that. We speak for Jesus as if he were appealing to people through us to come to him. Notice the flow and the progression of words. In verse 11, he said, talked about persuading which means to convince using reason and argument. And now he's saying, we're imploring you, be reconciled to God. There is sincerity, there is determination, there's an earnestness to it. When we make the case for the cross of Jesus like this, Paul says we're actually acting in Christ's behalf. And the only way we'll be motivated to act in this way is to have a deep And a proper appreciation for the cross. Because without the cross, there is no reconciliation. There is no message of reconciliation. There is no other way. And how could there be another way in light of all that God has done? And without you, without the church, there is no ministry of reconciliation. There is no plan B. We're it. (laughs) It has been committed to us to act on Christ's behalf, to make the appeal for people to be reconciled to God through Jesus. And so, as we've considered Paul's words here, we have seen a motivation for mission that finds its source in two things. The first was this, to ha- a desire to have the approval of Jesus and a proper and deep appreciation for his cross. And as I thought about this this week, my prayer has been that we will find a measure of freedom in this. So often, we can be motivated by how people may respond, can't we? Either positively or negatively. What I've observed in myself, at least, over the years, maybe you can say it's true of you, is that can lead to either passive fear and discouragement, Because for year after year, maybe we're trying to be that messenger of reconciliation to somebody and it keeps seeming to bounce off their ears and their hearts. Or perhaps there's an act of rejection we feel of us and of Christ and it's just discouraging and maybe we want to lose heart and give up. Or on the reverse side of things, when things are going well, there can be an arrogant self-confidence But our motivation is right and it's proper when we are simply seeking to please Jesus and to honor him. To have his approval. It will free us to say and do the right things in the right way, leaving the results with him. It compels and enables us to truly act in love towards others as our love is informed and shaped 
by his. And there is no greater expression of his love than what was accomplished at the cross. So tonight, we started off noting the power and importance of motivation in life in general, but particularly in the mission of Jesus in the world. And I'll conclude just with this. As followers of Jesus, may our desire to be pleasing to him when we stand before him and may our deep appreciation of what the love of God expressed through the cross makes possible motivate us to speak persuasively and sincerely as if Jesus himself were making the appeal through you and me for people to be reconciled to God, to be made new, and to find life in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, how we thank you for the message of the cross and for the Lord Jesus. As we look at the cross and see your great love with which you loved us in sending him to die in our place, that great exchange, that substitution, that act of reconciliation where your son took upon himself the guilt, the rebellion, every wickedness and evil thought and deed or word that could possibly have been committed and had been committed, he took on himself my sin, our sin, that we might be reconciled to you. You turned in love to the world. May we have such a deep appreciation of all that you have done and who you are, King Jesus, in your mission to glorify your Father and to bring the kingdom on earth, to provide that way for people to be redeemed and brought into that kingdom. May we have a deep appreciation for all these things and a love and a respect for you that we want nothing more than your approval as we act faithfully as your followers, as we imitate your love to the world by being your ambassadors, sharing your love, pointing others to your heart and to your actions that people might be redeemed, reconciled, made new in Christ. Lord, we confess that so often In terms of motivation and mission, we can be motivated by fear, motivated by guilt, motivated by pride, so many things that are not worthy of you. Please forgive us. And please help us to be motivated by one day standing before you in sincerity and integrity and a pure heart. And to be able to hear those all-important words from you. Well done. May we be your ambassadors. And Lord, we entrust to you the results. Help us to act in love. To act in sincerity. And to speak persuasively and earnestly. That people would be reconciled to you. For your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.